You're listening to the Racer to Racer podcast presented by Race 92. Race 92 is a vintage-inspired racing apparel brand specializing in celebrating vintage race culture and adapting to motorsports today. Check out Race92.com for all your racing merchandise needs. I'm your co-host, Aaron Macti, other co-host. You may see him walking out of Barber Lounge 459 with a big old smile on his face. You've probably seen him at a dirt track. He is a one and only Scott Bowie. Hello, Aaron. Hello. So obviously we took last week off because of Thanksgiving. Um, but you know, it's it's that time of year. It's a holidays, and um, you know, we take a week off, but we were back at it. Yeah, we are, and it uh it was um definitely an interesting holiday. Uh a lot of people in my family were sick. I didn't get to there was a few of them I didn't really even get to talk to. Um and then, so it was just the the whole holiday was just a little off, but uh, it was nice to have some time off. Um, we just finished up making our plans tonight to go to uh, St. Petersburg. So things are uh, things for the twenty twenty three season are starting to round into shape. So after the holidays, it'll it'll be there before we know it. Yep, we got PRI show here in a couple weeks. Yep. Um, so I, I, I don't think I'll be attending, but I know you will be. Yep, I may I, attend. I may attend, but I don't know yet. Um, and December 6th, we'll be doing a live show in McGilvery. So still working out the details on that. Um, a couple, couple announcers real quick. Well, first off, let's kind of explain what we're doing with this episode. So... Um, you know, I thought really needed to, re- to release it. So some of you may have actually gone to the event at Grand King Race Shops on November 11th and November 12th with Randy Lanier. Um, you know, it was a great two days. You were there Friday, Scott. Um, but yeah. I was one of the interview. I don't know what you call it, interviewers <laughs> <laughs> with um, Billy Throckmorton, who's actually been on the show before. Um, with Grand King Race Shops and um, Top Gun Racing. And, um, you know, it was a great event. I I recorded both nights, and I was like, we really need to um, do something with this. Even though, Scott, you know, you you were not... You were there, but you were not actually a part of the event. I was there I'm part of it in spirit, yes. Um, but I did get to look at... So we're, I'm releasing Friday night. Um, I thought Friday night... Both nights were great, you know, Saturday and Friday both, you know, we're a little different. Um, we tried to make Saturday a little different than Friday, but Friday um, we had a couple couple of his old crew members. Um, one was there on Saturday, but Friday we had both of them there. Um, Peter Jamie, who is part of the Blue Thunder racing team. And then um, I, I forget the other guy's name, but um, yeah. Yeah, was, I, I I know who he is. Uh, I've met him briefly a couple Don times. Or, uh, I don't, uh, I just, his name is just yeah. escaping me um, at this moment. I feel really bad. But he, but he worked on the Indy car. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, we have both of them there Friday and, you know, they got to, we um, Billy gave them the microphone and they got to talk to, um, to Randy a little bit during the, during the talk and it, you know, really added a lot to the show. And, um, <clears throat> I saw Friday, you know, flowed better for that reason. And, um, that was definitely a good, a good night, a good night to release. So it was, um, it was a lot of fun. And I think, you know, it's a little long, so we're trying to keep this intro kind of short, but you know, an evening with Randy Lanier, um, 
it's definitely. I mean, I got to sp spend the whole weekend with the guy, and it, that's something I'll never forget ever in my entire life. So, you know, he's really a you know a great guy to be around, and just his spirit. Um, he has a lot of life lessons. I mean, he spent 27 years in a federal prison, so he had a lot of time to think about think about life. Right. Yeah. Everything. Right. Everything. You, you, 24 hours is a <laughs> lot longer than uh, you can ever imagine. I'm sure when you're stuck in a federal prison. Uh, yeah, and you know, it was really good. Uh, he was, uh, very engaging. Uh, he, uh, just motivational speaking to some degree. Um, he's very passionate, uh, about his program for people who are in jail, um, seemingly for life sentences for, uh, essentially marijuana charges. Yeah. Um, so he's very passionate about that and he, and he's very passionate about his time in motorsports and he discusses all of these things. Yep, absolutely. And obviously, you know, he was there also promoting his book and did a book signing. If you haven't read it, make sure you get a survival of the fastest by Randy Lanier. Um, I read the book, like I've mentioned a couple times in like two days. So, um, yeah, great book. Please get it if you haven't. Um, I know Stephanie's got some signed copies um green king ray shop so if you're interested in a signed copy be sure to let us know or get with the green king ray shops absolutely yeah and they're signed copies right signed copies yes yeah. signed copies so yeah he um it was really good and uh i again only met him briefly um just talked to him for a moment uh, he really enjoyed the Grand King shops. He, he really enjoyed the history, uh, that the place has in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I just, I, I think he really enjoyed it. I think, uh, I would imagine it's still, even though he's been out for a little bit, it's still probably odd for him when he goes and does these things where, you know, he's at this race shop or he's at the speedway museum or he's out at another race shop, <laughs> you know, things that he just probably never thought he'd get to do again. Right. And I will say, um, you know, we ate breakfast with him Saturday morning. Um, he got a phone call from Doug bowls of breakfast. And then we're in the, the museum of any, of the, um, of the hall of fame museum in the, in the basement. And, um, you know, you're not supposed to, and, and I think I mentioned this before, but special thanks to the museum for, you know, kind of setting that up. And um, Joe, Joe Hale, I believe is his name, who's the president of IMS Museum um, for, you know, allowing us to do that. But, you know, we were in the basement. You're not supposed to have your phones or anything out. I mean, you're not supposed to take photos, obviously. Um, but Randy's phone rang down there in the basement and he goes, I got to take this as Chip Ganassi. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's stuff like that. It's stuff, you know, I'll never forget. Um, and yeah, I mean, just great guy to be around, and um, yeah, it was it was great event. I think every, I think everyone will enjoy it for sure. Yeah, the Friday night was close to sellout. Saturday night <clears> was <throat> a sellout. Yeah, um, and uh, and it is a great environment too. You know, they've got a they it was a catered event. They've got a nice little kind of kitchen area. Um, you know, places even though they do a lot of work in there. It's immaculately clean. Um, and like I kind of alluded to, there's tons of history in there, lots of race cars, uh, lots of cars that really brought back a lot of memories for me. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I had a great time. I, I it was it was beyond my expectations. And I think it's important to mention that he, I mean, he does a lot of speaking events, but ninety nine percent of the speaking events he does are you know usually catered towards something with you know cultivation marijuana. Um, you know, stuff like that. He doesn't do, this is like one of the only racing talks or racing events he's done, I think, ever. I mean, really, because most of the stuff, you look, most stuff he goes to, it's all, you know, stuff with business um, with, I mean, he's opening, he has a cultivation license now in New Jersey, so it's usually stuff centered around that. So this is kind of a different thing for him, and it was, you know, it was good, like we said, it's a good weekend for him, um, brought back a lot of memories, got to Sees, you know, some of his old crew members and got to experience some of the history of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which I know he'll really, he really enjoyed. And, um, you know, one thing he was talking about was um, a good friend of the Throckmortons is um, Todd Bedenhausen, who obviously mm-hmm. um, dad is um, Gary Bedenhausen. And, um, you know, he was with us in the museum and stuff. So Randy really enjoyed kind of hearing a lot of his stories and, um, you know, kind of the history of the Bedenhausens and, um, you know, just, just being with everybody, but yeah, like I said, great week. I can't say enough about that weekend, but yeah, I think everyone will enjoy the event and, um, yeah. So n- next week, next week we will be releasing Ernie Francis Jr. Which was also a great talk. Absolutely. It was Ernie Francis, uh, you know, young budding superstar. Um, <laughs> you know, he, road racing has been kind of his, wheelhouse and the trans am series um but he's you know in obviously that's enclosed wheels it's like trans am racing as i said but uh he's been really getting his feet wet in the in the next program indie lights whatever you want to call it and uh he's really excited for next year uh he feels like they are on the cusp of doing great things um and he has some great mentors and again, man, he was just a fun talk. Um, I, I like talking to these young guys because, you know, their future is all ahead of them, right? And there's a lot of excitement, whether it's Nikki Hayes or Jagger or, or uh, Jackson Lee or, you know, Ernie or or whomever we speak to from that group, you know, Jack William Miller. Um, they they still love the sport and they, they are still learning about the sport. You know, the sport's still an adventure to them. And uh, it's not a business to him necessarily yet. So I really enjoy that. And, um, yeah, I think people enjoy it. You know, I think yeah. they'll they'll really get something out of it. Yeah, and obviously we've, I mean, we've, we've interviewed a lot of, um, you know, older drivers or retired drivers. Um, but, you know, that's, I mean, we're trying to interview everyone. It's not just older right. drivers. Um, obviously, those guys are fun to interview. Um, but... You know, we also want to interview the newer drivers. I, I mean, I, I've, I've had a PR person once tell me that, um, you know, we needed to interview an older driver that they had instead of a newer driver because they felt like it, it fit us better. But you know, that's not really necessarily the case because we, we're trying to interview everyone in race. We're in nobody's box. I, I'm just going to tell you that right yeah, now. Absolutely. I mean, if somebody thinks that they're going to put this show in a box. They can stick it up their ass because <laughs> that's just now how it is, man. I'm just going to tell you now. We're going to yeah, have absolutely. anybody. Anybody and everybody that we want to talk to, I don't care who you are. Um, I, if you got a story to tell, I want to hear it. And I want people who find our show interesting, I want them to hear it as well. 
Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think we rambled enough. So do you have anything else, Scott? Uh, just uh, midgets uh, completed the season. Uh, Ventura, uh, Turkey Night, which is now on a Saturday. Uh, it's now 98 laps in uh, appreciation of the Agajanian family. Uh, and Justin Grant, who lives in Indiana now, but originally from California, became uh, this year's winner. Um, he was good at the end. It was one of those deals where people who led during that race, you know, they'd either bike up and crash or, you know, just crazy things were kind of happening all night. Um, Kyle Larson come from deep in the field, ran second. Um, it just, it was just kind of a crazy night. Uh, beautiful trophy. Uh, it was this handmade trophy by the promoter who, um, it was Parnelli and, you know, it represented Parnelli and Agajanian's number 98 midget that he had won Turkey night with. Um, so it was just, it was really a good event. Ventura Speedway is right on the ocean, um, which makes it one of the more unique racetracks in the country. So, uh, but hats off to Justin. Um, other than that, much that type of racing, all motor racing is pretty much coming to an end right now. And everybody's just kind of geared up. Florida will be starting pretty soon. And like you mentioned, PRI kind of leads into the chili bowl, which leads into uh, Florida. And it, then it just all starts over again. Yeah. And so a couple of things real quick. First off, thanks to racer collect. Um, if you look for any racing mobility, go to racercollect.com. Also, got to give a shout out to Fast Times Indoor Karting. Um, we're, if you've noticed, obviously, we've done a couple of the Proverse Joe's videos so far. We recorded one a couple weeks ago that we will be releasing probably in a couple weeks. Um, got another really good one lined up here in a few weeks with uh, several former drivers. So um, these are turning a lot of fun. You know, we definitely want to help promote Fast Times Indoor Karting. Definitely if you're in the Indy area. Um, I think it's the most realistic kind of racing experience you can get really without actually going in a race car. Um, there's obviously several indoor karting tracks in, in the Indy area. Um, but fast times definitely is, I would say the fastest, the most intense and you really get the most, I think biggest bang for your buck. Well, I, I agree. And I mean, Sarah Fisher's got a beautiful complex. K one's yeah. got a nice place. Um, Fast times, if you're going to go faster, you got to get your elbows up and you got to run hard every lap. I mean, that place is pretty taxing. Hey, you watch, hey, you watched me dump a guy at um, Sarah Fisher. So, yeah, I did. I did also. Why? So, a little inside baseball, we go, uh, we kind of celebrate Aaron's birthday a little early. We went and had pizza over by Sarah Fisher's and then we went and uh, Aaron. Uh, rode the go-kart a little bit. And uh, I told Aaron, I said, you're going to be the fastest guy in this group. He didn't believe me. He was a second faster than everybody <laughs> ran against. So uh, Aaron's getting a lot better. Fast times, I think, really helped him. But uh, somebody somebody was in his way, and the guy was kind of blocking him, and Aaron just dumped him. And I, I don't know if I've ever been prouder. Well, but hey, man, like, um, and I will say the one guy passed me after they waved the checkered flag, and the guy's like, you know, passes me so he can say he got ahead of me. It's like, look, look at the time, buddy. 
Right. Yeah, it's a it's more of a timed race than it is a lap race. So well, I think uh, it's whoever a, has the best time. I think it was an ego race for this individual, but yeah, I think so too. Hey, it's um, all good. But hey, you know, I can run to the back of the pack against racing against, you know, IndyCar former IndyCar drivers, but I guess going, you know, racing against guys you never really raced before, you kind of it really it really helps. So uh, Right. And then if all things we got to see uh Guest of the show, Jagger Jones's USF 2000 car just sitting in the infield there. And it's current spec model. It's the car he raced last year. So I don't know if they have plans to race it themselves or if they're just going to keep it for display. I I couldn't really figure it out. But uh, yeah, it, was it was kind of an odd thing seeing that car just sitting there because it's a was a brand new car last year. So um, had a little fun with Jagger with that. But uh, yeah, other than that. Uh, race of season is kind of coming to an end. Uh, Aaron is busy setting up shows. So uh, I think we're going to have some really good shows again in the future. Got to thank the good people, the good guys. Um, they have helped me stay warm and cold and they're helping my, uh, my brother and dad right now with some uh, issues with their heater. So if anybody needs help, please call the good folks at good guys. Good guys, absolutely. Well, hope everyone enjoys Randy Lanier um, special event, and then stay tuned for next week, and hope everyone has a great week. Take care, everybody. As I was a little kid, I got a fascination. Uh, I was born in Virginia, and my, my grandfather and uncles, they would always listen to the race in the tobacco farms. Uh, I grew up. Um, my grandfather grew tobacco, and we'd go every Sunday and make ice cream on Sundays, and um, that was the thing. We'd go for a Sunday drive in the car, and it was a big deal uh, to, to go for my, with my parents to the, to the tobacco farm, and I'd run through the tobacco fields and just grew up with a normal kid, loving relationship in Virginia, country boy, and listening to, on AM radio, the Indy 500, and it got my my interest in it. And as the years progressed, uh, I, I was a late bloomer. I started in my 20s racing cars. I bought an old Porsche, <clears throat> fixed it up, me and one other guy, I think Peter knows who that is, Joe Watts, a good mechanic, a good friend. And we took this to SCCA Racing. And from there, I was fortunate enough to win the southeastern regional championship and just amazing thing i got a break in in the early 80s 1982 was my first really good break i went to le mans and i actually first drove for daytona 24 hours to daytona with a guy named preston hen but he had drivers driving the car it was a guy named bob wallach uh, you guys heard of bob he, um, very well French driver that was just exceptionally fast, a factory driver for the Porsche team, and a German driver called Edgar Dorwin. Um, he's less well known in the United States, but also a world-renowned um, road racer. Um, so I drove for, for the Ferrari team in Daytona and went to Le Mans and didn't have really good success. We ended up DNF in there and <clears throat> came back and getting rides and with other teams and in 1983, uh, I was at the Miami Grand Prix and kind of, we made the field really good, qualified, it was raining, 
went to practice and my gearbox broke and shattered my dreams right there. I'm, I'm, all my family and friends. I'm, I'm from Florida now. I, I moved there when I was a teenager. <clears throat> so all my fr friends and family are there and I'm watching it from the pits. I made my mind up then to start my own race team and we started a team called Blue Thunder. Peter's got the jacket on and I th thank you, sir. I'm humbled that you still have this jacket. I, amazing that you have it. So I appreciate that. So in 1984, I think it's something up there, I ended up winning the IMSA GTP championship, driving a, a, a march, a GTP march uh, made in England on the March factory. Um, we just, everything we did was gold that year. And at the same time, oh, I had started, I had started at 19 years old, I started bringing in marijuana from the Bahamas. I'd smuggle it, I bought a little speedboat, a Magnum 27 foot boat. I'm 19 years old and I started bringing weed in and it just kept going and going and I found ways to make a substantially large sum of money. And that fueled my racing and that took me to Indianapolis 500 in 1986. And um, wasn't 1986, I finished 10th rookie of the year broke Michael Andretti's record that had been setting for three years and just was felt like t on top of the world. But at the same time, in 1986, I was being investigated for importing uh, scheduled one narcotic, marijuana. Now how this plant is scheduled one narcotic is beyond me because I have six people right now that are currently clear of cancer due to this oil that's extracted from this plant. So that needs to be changed. And I got caught up in a case in 1987. It didn't go so well. I, I took my case to trial. Uh, it was no, they hadn't pinched, uh, arrested any, any product. I got all the product in and I sold it and made a ton of money. And that just, as I said, fueled my racing and a whole lot of other uh, endeavors that I was doing from, I uh, built a casino in 1985. That went quite well until the FBI seized it. <laughs> and they didn't seize it until after I was in the joint, but that didn't go well with, with the people. That they, we all lost the casino and a whole lot of other stuff, but it's amazing because I get out, I, it takes me three decades to fight my case. I went to the Supreme Court three times. Now you gotta understand, there's no marijuana that was found in my case. I have what's called a dry case. Not one bud, not one seed, not one stem ever got found, ever got arrested, ever got sold. All the weed that I did in port got sold and smoked. And that's the end of the story. But it, but it wasn't. Uh, I took my case to trial and got convicted of importing and distributing a scheduled one narcotic, marijuana. And I'm still fighting to this day for a lot of my brothers and sisters that are still in, in prison. I have a nonprofit organization. Uh, I got to 87, I got pinched in 2014, I got released. And now I'm the vice president of Freedom Grow, and I'll get into that a little bit. I have a nonprofit organization. <clears throat> All of us are volunteers. None of us take a salary. We don't get paid. Everything that we do with this nonprofit, 
I support the families because when you lock someone up, when I I got arrested, my my wife <clears throat> had just given birth to a, a seven-year-old son. He was seven seven days old. My daughter was seven years. So when I was being investigated in 1986 at the Indy 500, my wife was pregnant with twins, and. I found out we're getting investigated. We lost one of the twins before birth. So my son was born without his brother. Now, I, it takes me three decades, 27 years. I get out in 2014, and my son, who was a twin, but we lost his brother, he has a girlfriend, and she gets pregnant within weeks of me being released. She has twins. So now I'm a grandfather of two seven-year-old twin boys, and I can't wait to get them in a race car. <laughs> I'm uh, just, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Go-karts first, probably. I'm working on that now. But it, it's amazing, and I'm not here to talk about religion, but I am here to spread a message to you about there's so much more in life than our outer priorities. I like to tell my children, we have outer priorities, what we see out here, but we have an inner priority. And the inner priorities are actually more important than the outer priorities because the inner priorities kind of set the path for how you want to achieve your goals and what you want to accomplish on your outer priorities, how you want to go about achieving it. And back in the 80s, I kind of was caught up in the outer priorities, making a, a ton of money, racing, racing cars, and wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to the inner priorities. So sometimes, and, and I'm seriously when I tell you this, our struggles and our hardships that we go through, and everybody goes through hardships and struggles. It's just part of life. But our hardships and our struggles, that's where we develop our wisdom and our strength and our resiliency. And it's an amazing thing because at the time, I'm going to tell you something strange. It's probably what I needed to go to prison because it helped me develop an understanding of my true authentic self. And I went in there my last nine years I became what's called a suicide volunteer, a companion. I sat with men for four hours a day, men that tried to take their lives. And some of them would talk and some of them wouldn't. They could stay in this, it's a plexiglass room. This is a maximum security penitentiary. And they built this room and it's all plexiglass, thick plexiglass. And in the middle of this room is a cement slab. It's about, th about this high off the ground. The people aren't allowed to have clothes. They give them what's called a suicide jacket. They feed them in a, um, a paper bag. They're not allowed to have plastic utensils and stuff like that. So I would sit with these men for four hours a day and... <clears throat> Some of the stories was horrendous because a lot of these people got hurt by the people that loved them, whether it was their dad or a relative or whatever it is. But and I tell people, we're not a past. We're none of that. 
We're not our thoughts. We're not our emotions. And I know that because emotions come and go. That's what it is. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about different than racing tonight. I hope you kind of, and I said one of the greatest things we can do is be a good listener. And through my hardship and struggles, I get out of prison 2014 and I become a behavioral health technician. That means I'm working with substance abuse, people that are mostly Afghanistan veterans. I teach how to, people how to meditate. And back in my teenage years, I, I, I got into an Indian guru. And I became a person that teenager, I was a vegetarian at 18 years old. And I started meditating and stuff, and it helped me with racing, but it helped me in these maximum security prisons because now I started doing yoga and I go to psychology class and tell them, hey, I want, I want to start a yoga class in a recreation department. Well, we've never had no yoga in this. Uh, how do you think the men are going to go along with it? I said, well, we'll see. We'll bring them in the yard, off the yard and we'll see. Well, the yoga class went really well. So my last 10, 12 years, I'm teaching yoga and I'm a suicide companion. And it taught me the greatest things that I've ever experienced. And that is the greatest form of knowledge on the planet is empathy. And when you start really paying attention to it, you'll see that we're blessed with super gifts, superpowers. And it might sound loony, but I'm telling you, every one of you right now, you have superpowers. And one, for example, is one that you know about, but maybe not pay attention to it. We have the capability and the capacity to change any experience that we're experiencing. I don't care how hard the hardship is, how hard the struggle is, financial, relationships, whatever it is. If you're experiencing negative stuff in any situation, you have the capability of changing that experience. And it's so simple. All you have to do is change your perspective. You see, our perspective creates our experience. So if you're tripping on something that's negative and you're struggling, you don't have to experience these negative feelings and emotions. You can change it by changing your perspective. And so... I go to the prison after making a ton of money, racing cars, and I find a purpose. We have many purposes in this life, many. And they change as you go through your life. The purpose may change. And if you ever go through, through that, it took me a long time to figure out some of my purposes. Being of service to others is one of them. It's one of the greatest things that we can experience is when you uplift someone else's life, it's an amazing feeling. So now I run a non-profit organization called Freedom Grow, and we support cannabis prisoners and their families. I have 188 of them that are non-violent. I vetted every one of them. They're non-violent. A lot of them are first-time offenders like myself. I was a first-time offender. And I got given a life sentence. 
and everybody says, well, you sold so much, you brought in big, large loads. It's a flower. It's a plant. And it's a plant that heals. And it not only heals the people, but it helps heal the planet. And it, it's an amazing thing that, you know, if any of you like to discuss it later, I'd love to talk about it. I, I go to events now, and I kind of split the message. I ask people, just, just look at these people. These are families that are broken. They're struggling. They're separated because when you lock someone up, you lock up the family. It, it's just not the guy that's in the joint. It's the family that's separated from them. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough topic sometimes, talking about prison. But with me, it's not because these people are just worthy of so much more than what they're getting because they, I've got people, I mean, I want to show you something. I've got some people in my, in my uh, nonprofit that for one kilo of weed, a plant, 30 years in prison, and you think, oh, no, that shit ain't happening. It is. I sat in a courtroom about three months ago I served 27 years, I already told you that, but I go to court support and I give these men support. There's one in Baltimore, Maryland. He just got seven years, he got blessed. He was looking at a 10 year minimum. Here's Chris Butler. Possession of more than one kilo of weed. That's two, two pounds of weed in his trunk of his car. The maximum he should have got was six to 24 years. The man got 30 years. And you heard me say, my brothers are still in the joint. And I sincerely say that because they're your brothers too. Because there's one creator that's one self. There's not seven billion selves on this planet. There's one actor playing all these parts. You can call it God or energy or whatever. But that's how I relate it to being my brother. So Chris is going 30 years for a kilo. Doesn't make sense. So we have Kendall here. Possession of more than one kilo. He gets pulled over for crossing the fog line. They give him 60 years. And the public don't understand it or see it, that these people, these ain't people that are robbing and killing and shooting. They're people that got some weed on them, a plant, a flower. That if you grow 12 plants in your home, you're gardening to me. If you grow six plants, you're still gardening. I love the garden. I grow everything. I, any flower I can plant, I'm a tree hugger. Any flower and, and hibiscus or cactus. I, I got my whole house is full of flowers and stuff because in the 90s, I'm in Leavenworth, Kansas. And we had some trees on the yard with a 40-foot wall. And we go out one day and they run us all in, tell us the wreck yard's closed. They're cutting down the trees. They, someone got climbed up in the tree. So they cut all the trees down. So only time we could see a tree is we get up on the bleachers and try to look over this 40-foot wall and a couple miles away you could see the trees. 
So I'm a tree hugger now. I love trees. But it's a plant. It's a flower. And these people here have got families. And they're in jail for a flower, a plant. And it just it doesn't seem right. But yet, I'm going to tell you something that's really mind-blowing. This is about Freedom Grow. We're all volunteers. I'm the vice president. None of us take a salary. Every board member is somebody that's been impacted by the war on drugs. And I say it's not really a war on drugs. It's a war on our own citizens. Think about it. How do you make a war on a plant or on drugs? It's a war on our own citizens. And so we have a wish program. I have 188 prisoners. That's all nonviolent. All cannabis prisoners. Only weed. That's all I'm, I do with. I support these families. I have a wish program. If you're a cannabis prisoner and I've vetted you, if it's your mother's birthday, your grandmother's birthday, your grandchildren's, your sons, I don't care. Anybody in your family. You just tell us what you want and we make it happen. From one rose to a dozen roses to a box of chocolates. For Mother's Day, we get a lot of um, robes. We want robes and slippers. And <clears throat> we just had for Father's Day, um, a guy wanted, his father had got a new puppy. And we put a, a, a GPS ch chip in the dog collar. So we grant wishes. Doesn't matter. We send books, magazines, commissary. Every month, we send $50 to 50 prisoners. I have to rotate them because I don't have enough money to do it every month for all the, all the 188 prisoners that we have. But we do that through donations. So I go through these events. I just did an event last weekend up in the middle state of Florida. And it's amazing because I got a life sentence for weed. And now I got a nonprofit organization. And this is what we do, our mission. I raise awareness. That's why you hear me talking about something other than racing. And we'll get to racing and not all the questions. But I'd like to raise the awareness that, hey, there's people for a flower, for a plant that actually heals people. So we support prisoners and their families. We advocate for drug policy reform on the local and state level. And we provide support and, and resources for these people that are going through these struggles. We educate about the benefits of cannabis legalization. I want to tell you something. It is amazing. Last March, March 28th, the state of New Jersey awarded me a social equity cultivation license. And not just any license. They gave me what's called a tier four license. I'm allowed to grow now 75,000 square feet of canopy. That's 40,000 pounds of weed a year that I can grow and sell. I'm starting construction the first week of December in New Jersey. And it blows my mind that I got locked up for three decades. It took me. And now a state just gave me a license to grow. So I'm thinking, my God, hopefully I'll help get all these prisoners out because... 40,000 pounds of weed, and the price of weed in New Jersey, you won't even believe it. $3,500 a pound, commercial, retail, I mean wholesale, from the cultivators. So how ironic is this? 
that I'd go to prison and I get out and they give me a license. I, that just it's just I it just blow, it's mind blowing. But the racing, I love. I I I come out. I've been instructing uh, for up until COVID. When COVID hit, I was instructing in a Corvette school down in when Fort Lauderdale, Daytona, Sebring, and Homestead Speedway was my home tracks. So I love doing that. <clears throat> I just dropped this book, Randy Lanier. Uh, that's me. <laughs> it's survival of the fastest. And I wrote the book to spread some message about this plant. No one should be locked up for this plant. It's got a lot of racing stuff in it, and it has a lot of... Um, a lot of stories about my smuggling operations. They wasn't small. They started out small. But when I realized things could come about, I kept turning, the, turning it up and, and, and doing bigger loads. And <clears throat> greed can kind of take you down the road because I was making all this money and spending it on race cars and casinos and restaurants and mobile home parks and um i bought a racetrack in atlanta from my buddy bill and don whittington <laughs> don't a lot of people know that but they was getting in trouble they were also involved in what i was doing we was we had partnered up a couple of times the whittingtons and i and so um when they was getting in trouble they they came to me and said hey they're about ready to seize my racetrack in road atlanta you want to buy it? And I said, absolutely, I'll buy it. So that was 1985. <clears throat> so I bought that racetrack. And I, I'm a, I'm a guy that, it, I'll shake your hand. I don't need a contract. That's just how it is. And I thought I had some friends in the racing community that I could do that with, a couple of racers. And um, that didn't work out that way. Um, I go to the joint, <laughs> and the, the track got sold, and now NASCAR owns it. So. But it's all good. The book is, a, it's, I'm getting really good feedback. Um, it's a fast read. They, they, when I started it, I first thought, well, damn, it's going to be about a thousand pages long because I got stories. I got stories. And uh, I said, all right, so my attorney's going, well, you should maybe consider self-publishing it. I said, well, uh, I like to. I need the money to get a, an advancement. I've never done a book. I'm not a writer. He said, "Well, you're not a writer, so you probably won't get an advance because you're not a published author." So I contacted my buddy A.J. Bain. He had wrote an article for Maxim Magazine when I got out, and um, asked, asked him if he'd like to do a book. So we partnered up, and um, all the words of mine. I think he might have maybe thirty or forty words in there that he he put in there but um he helped me structure it um the chapters and um <clears throat> instead of a thousand the publishing company that i ended up going with wanted ninety thousand words so everybody tells me it's a fast read so um i think you'll find that you're going to enjoy the book it, it's a lot of stories and it's got some things in there that I look at life, and we're all blessed. We're blessed to be here in the moment. And I say we have superpowers. And it's an amazing thing when you start paying attention to the powers that you do have. Like I said, you can change any experience that you want. 
but you have the capability and the capacity to be the observer of your own thoughts and emotions. And it, a lot of times we can get on autopilot and don't even think about it. That's why you see domestic violence. That's why you see road rage. People get on autopilot. And you don't need to be on autopilot. So if you pay attention and you can really go, wait a minute, I can do some internal talk. I don't need to be in anger. I don't need to have these kind of emotions floating in me because I blew my horn and the guy shot me a bird. I mean, it's amazing the powers that we do have. And when you start really paying attention and being present, and I like to say, be where your feet are. I want to thank you all for coming here. And, you know, it's just amazing. Did you have some questions? And you want to I'm take gonna, it I'm going to start off. You mentioned the Whittingtons. Yeah, that's my, that's my so, guy, man. So now I, I remember, you know, around here we build our own cars. We build our own tubs. And when the marches came in in uh, 1980, 81, and I think the Whittingtons were bringing most of them in. Yep. Now, I know it was kind of rare with your, your IMSA GT, you ran the march. March. And you pretty much killed the Porsches. Um, it was killing them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you were, you were taking, taking them, and they weren't used to that. Um, but I was always curious, did the Whittingtons help you get the march um, when you started in into IMSA in 83, yeah. 84. So, so in 1980, 1983, I was there was a couple of marches with uh, Marty Hines. He had he had picked up a march. Don and Bill Whittington were still driving the 935 Porsches, and I had driven a couple of races with the youngest brother Dale in Daytona, and um, did some other races. They had a race. Uh, um, it's called the Firecracker 250. It starts at July the 4th at midnight. <clears throat> and I did that in 935. So I, I was racing the 930. And by the way, <clears throat> the not, other than the GTP March, which I really loved and I won the championship in, the 935 Porsche was, was the, the car that I love. I, that, that, it, just, it's just badass, raw, um, no driver's assist, none of the stuff that they have these days. No anti-lock brakes and all that stuff. So when I, in 1983, when I broke, I, I DNF'd in Miami Grand Prix, I went to Bill and I said, look, I, I, I got to do this myself because we're running a team and we don't have the parts to fix a gearbox and I'm watching the race from the pits. So you, know, you want to be my driver with me, a co-driver. We'll do IMSA, 1984. He said, yeah. I said, well, who do you think we can get as a crew chief? And he mentioned uh, someone that had helped him, Keith Layton. And Keith was instrumental in um, telling me about the marches. And uh, he convinced me right at the first meeting I had. So Bill and Don were the, the original guys that was started bringing the march so, over. So the march actually came in like it did at Indy. I mean, it came from nowhere, and they were fast right out of the box. They was fast. They had some hell of a they had a lot of side bite with their downforce on the car and uh it's it's just amazing the the springs that we could run at indy because of the 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 downforce and the side bite the car had now as we're speaking about the uh, blue thunder team 
Peter Jamie sitting yeah. back there in the back row. Yes, sir. With the jacket that you already acknowledged. Yeah. Um, Peter was on your crew back then. Peter was on my crew. And uh, I'm going to hand the microphone, but let's hear a couple stories about what you guys remember back then. Uh, we probably got some wild stories. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. Well, I mean, we had such good times, you know. We, yes, we did. And we had some good parties at uh, the good. Sardine Factory at Laguna. Where we, yeah. We won the race there. Did you go to the uh, the Las Vegas party when we won Laguna Seca? I think we won Laguna Seca, and oh. we flew back in the Learjet, and I just said, let's, who wants to go to Vegas? And everybody on the plane says, all right, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Yeah, I remember that. Uh, I, <laughs> we I might not want to talk yeah, about that yeah, one. No, no, I still got the photographs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, look, real quick. Uh, I, I think I think the best one was Lime Rock. We we, we won oh, Lime Rock, with, and we went to New York. Yeah, remember the Plaza? Oh, that's after we won Watkins Glen. You remember? Didn't we? We and all the crew went in the limo. Uh huh. And we all got our own rooms. Yeah. And. We had uh, decor uh, decorated rooms, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was fun times. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the crew would play play pranks on us. Bill Whittington yeah. and myself were the drivers. Peter and Keith and uh, Donnie is Don is that yeah. was Donnie here? He's no. not here. And um, <clears throat> they would play pranks on us. The and, lobster, the lobster. And in they Lombard. listen. These guys are engineers. They know how to play pranks. I'm not an engineer. So I come in with, uh, was that uh, Elkhart Lake? No, that was Lime Rock. That was Lime Rock. Yeah, it, it, the it lobster. Made, Do you remember yeah, the lobster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go, Bill and I go out to dinner one night, just him and I, and we come back to the hotel room, and we got rooms beside each other. I go in, I cut my lights on, and there's no light. Um, the light, light don't work. Bill goes on in. I don't see no more from him. So I go into the bathroom to go pee. Light don't work in there either. So I go to pee. I go to flush it. It flush don't work. <laughs> so now I think, all right, let me wipe the toilet seat off. I get some paper, toilet paper to wipe the, wipe the seat off. There ain't no toilet paper. I said, oh, no, these guys get pranked me. So I go in now, back from the bathroom. I go into the to where the bed is, and I go to sit down. And I sit down on like springs. There's no mattress. They done took the damn mattress out. Yeah. I said, "Oh God, boy!" So now I get on the phone, and I go, "I go uh, the front desk. Front desk. They answer front desk. I say, "Hi, this is Lanier. I'm in room two two whatever." They go, "Hello, front desk." I said, this is Randy Lanier in room whatever I'm in. And they go, hello, front desk. They then took the speaker out of the phone. These guys knew exactly what I was going to do. All right? So about that time, I go to go out and tell Bill. And I hear him saying, motherfuckers. And he comes running out. And they didn't. They done tied a lobster, a main lobster with the claws. They done went and got a main lobster and tied him up on a pillar. And, and so when Bill laid down, <laughs> he get to snapping with the main lobster. So you guys made the best pranks. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. We we could I couldn't think that that good with uh, yeah. with you guys. You guys was killing me with the pranks, man. Yeah. We had to call a truce. Do you remember? Well, yeah. At that point, the next morning, we all see him. Hey, we don't we don't let nothing. We don't tell him anything's going on. We act like nothing happened. Hey, good morning. Yeah. <clears throat> so they leave to go to breakfast. We stay behind. And we, what are we going to do? These guys then outsmarted us. So we go into each room and we're just, we're improvising. So we take all that clothes and throw it in the tub. And, and I don't know. I turned the hot water on. I should have turned it cold. But I take all that, all that cologne and pour it in the, in the tub and just let the water run. But it made all the clothes bleed. And yeah. so we don't we, we don't see him, but now we're out there kind of looking at from the hotel room, and I see a like a Ford LTD backed up, and it's like leaning, like the shocks are down on the ground. They got all their wet clothes, <laughs> and when they drove off, the car's like this, and water's just pouring out of the back of the trunk of the car. Uh, and, and then we get to the track, and they say, "Look, truce. You guys don't play fight. Play yeah. fair." <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we had some, uh, and really ran good. Yeah, we we really did. Really, really ran well. good. Yeah. yeah. So when you were racing, um, I mean, most of your crew did not know where the money was coming from, right? There's I mean, one of my crew be, right here. I mean, that may be a good question. Did you have any idea where the money was coming from? No, not really. We just, got, you know, if you, uh, we needed something for the cars, it would show up. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, I did have a couple of crew members that were what I call offloaders. These are people, when my ships would come in, they would help offload the bales. And Slick and Joe. Yeah. I had two members, and Alan, the, the, the motorhome driver. He was also the cook. So I had three people on my team that knew uh, were part of my operations, but I kind of grilled them. You don't say nothing to nobody ever about what I'm doing. Keep that to yourself. So I think all the other crew uh, kind of must have figured it out because uh, we'd buy two or three of everything. <laughs> now, I do have a question. In your documentary, yeah. Yeah. you're talking about your three offloaders. The one gentleman with the curly hair that's kind of a... He, His name's Alan. Okay, he was fun to listen to. He yeah, he's authentic. That's him. I just... Uh, yeah, I see him quite often. Good. You guys are still oh, good yeah. friends. Yeah, and, yeah. Okay. He got... Uh, I think he did five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got a different judge than I. I had a hanging judge. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. I we have a question right yeah, here. Yeah, any right questions? Here. I'm open, man. I just had a, a question because I was talking to uh, Greg Leffler one time. And Greg Leffler was actually the March distributor. Do you remember Greg? The name sounds familiar. You know Greg? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was through Sherman Armstrong. Oh, I know yeah. Sherman, yeah. 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 Yeah, so Greg would remark that when he was the distributor, that either yourself or one of the Whittingtons would have a crash or something, and he would you would come in and it would be just like Miami Vice. 
that you would just pull a wad out and start whipping out the $100 bills like that. And he said, one time, I don't, don't know if it was you or one of the Weddingtons, came in just with a briefcase. And like you said, ordered like two of everything. And he said he was scared shitless leaving the track with all that cash. Did carrying all that cash ever yeah. bother you? No, and I did carry cash. I usually, at every race, I carried about $50,000, $75,000 with me. Um, a short story. You remember the story? I don't know if you remember it. It's in the book. I'm, in, I'm at the L.A. Grand Prix. I've never seen the L.A. Grand Prix. It's out in Riverside, California, 1980, 1984. So that weekend, I'm up in San Francisco, and I have a 300-foot barge with a 150-foot tugboat with 150,000 pounds of marijuana on it. I bring it in. It's about $60 million worth of weed. It could be a good payday. Is that what, that's what you cleared? That's what we, I, I, I clear about 15 million. Okay. Me. Okay. The, the load was 60. Yeah. So I just did a load. I shoot down to LA and we got to LA Grand Prix. I get there like, I think on a Saturday. I, I think I missed the first practice session and I have breakfast with everybody in the morning, the, the team. And, I got this bag and it's got 50 grand in it and some beepers. Back then we didn't have the cell phones. We, we, we deal with beepers. And I got some beepers and I got a ledger book with my figures of what tract and trailer got what. I was hauling it in a tract and trailers, seven of them. And so I go to breakfast, I meet everybody and I set this bag down on the floor. And we all, chit-chatting and we all go to the racetrack now i've never seen the racetrack this is my first time there so i'm out practicing getting ready to qualify and light bulb goes off on the back straightaway oh hell no <laughs> i left that bag of money at the hotel restaurant so i pull into the pits and bill, come, bill comes over to my car opens the door he says what are you doing I said, look, you got to shoot back to the hotel. I left the money there. So that night before, one of my friends just got a brand new, um, like AMG, all fitted out Mercedes. And he gave it to my wife to drive. So she didn't want to go to the racetrack. She's going to Rodeo Drive. All right? She wants to go shopping. So I tell Bill, go back to the hotel and and." And see if that money's there. If not, talk to the manager. He, he takes off. I, he comes back later. And he says, man, I pull up to the hotel. There's one police car. There's the, the Mercedes that Pam's driving. The, the, she didn't hit the remote control button and made the alarm go off. And it locked everything. And she couldn't get into it. So the police are there because of this, this Mercedes Benz that that don't belong to her is is going off like crazy. They can't get this, the, the, the noise to go off the alarm. And she's calling Bill over, hey, come over here with the police. And he's going, no, I don't want that. I, I got something to do. And he goes in, and they wouldn't give him the bag because he didn't know how much money was in the bag. Oh, no. Yeah. So what happened? I, I came back, and they gave me the money. And okay. th this is amazing. I go... I said, well, would you tell me the waitress that 
turned it in. She, he said, the manager says, yeah, it's so-and-so. So the next morning, I'll wait, and i wait until I see this waitress. And I go to give her some money, and she wouldn't accept it. I said, what? I said, please accept this. She said, no. So I go back to the manager, and I gave him five grand. I said, give it to all the waitresses and make that day. So it was just amazing people on this planet that, you know, I'm amazed all the time of how beautiful people are. So when the I was going to say, so when the manager gave you the bag, he asked you what was in the bag, right? The manager asked me, and I told him $50,000 in beepers and uh, some notepads. He looked at me, he comes back, he's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that didn't sound fishy at all. No, it's, it's what it was. Well, well, let's move along a little bit here. And, and uh, 85, 86, and, and we're working towards the IndyCar scene. Yep. Um. You know, I, uh, I I believe you drove for Frank Arciero. Arciero yeah. had quite a team back then. Yeah, Frank was like my brother or my dad. He's a little older than I. He's passed away now. But Frank was known for running rookies. Michael Andretti. He's run a lot of people uh, through his time. His family races to this day, uh, the Baja 1000. They've won it many, many times. They do a lot of off-road. Um, they used to race with Iron Man Stewart. And, and I got to say now, you're 86, rookie year at the Speedway. You're, you're rookie of the year, which is phenomenal. Thank you. Um, but I know a lot of the guys that were uh, – Paul Diatlovich was your crew chief. Yeah. You got Donnie Basala back there was working on it. Chuck That's Buckman. Yeah. Donnie, I was looking for you. I didn't even – hey, bro, don't, yeah. Yeah, so Basala was there. You had Chuck Buckman. I mean, you had – I've known these guys for a long time since yeah. I was a kid. There's some shady characters there to begin <laughs> with, you know. Um, but it was a good group of guys, very good intelligent group. guys. Very good group, uh, good guys that could set up a race car and make it was it old school. Yes, old school. Yeah, and set up a, and trim the car out and did amazing. When I first came here, they said, "Well, we want to put a lot of um, understeer in the car." I said, "Well, why you want to do that?" They said, "Well, cause you ask, you lift the foot off off the throttle, you won't drive it into the wall the first lap." <laughs> Uh, so they uh, kind of got a little push in the car and gradually kept trimming the car up to, to where I got comfortable in the car. But had a great group of guys. Uh, Frank Arciero, you mentioned, was a guy who came from Italy, probably 40s or 50s. He arrived here as a young eight-year-old kid. And, and, and he... Before he built the wineries, he got into cement, and he built a lot of the highways in California and made a ton of money with uh, the cement and the construction. And then um, he started the wineries, and my money facilitated the wineries, <laughs> which it does little known. Uh, Well, we had a brand new 86 March and uh, getting it ready. And uh, it was, they, uh, the 86 Marches were nice cars, nice to work on. And you could change something and it'd work and uh, very nice. So they enjoyed Frank. I yeah. wanted to ask you, um, 
Oh, no, they'll see it. There we go. Is that better? Yeah, I can hear okay, you good. Sorry. Never knew how to talk on these things. But um, had a real good time. I talked to Paul this morning, and oh, he said you? to say hi. Oh, yeah. Is so, he here in Indy? No, he's down in Florida. Okay. That's where I'm at. <laughs> and, uh, but um, we were talking about a few of the things that happened, and he, he got talking about you and good stories there too that probably too long to go into but uh it really uh had a good time that year with you you guys racing or you racing and uh us chasing <laughs> just um what about um you were talking about people that worked with you there was the blonde haired guy joe uh joe watts Smitty. 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 Or maybe that was an uh, alias. <laughs> huh? Larry Smith. Smith. Yeah, he's in Chicago. Oh, is he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's still alive. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that <is> a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I thought you did a really good job. They were getting Rookie of the Year that year. Oh, yeah, thank you. you know, we were, all of us were pretty I, happy. Yeah, I, I was happy, but um at the Indy 1986, I had been informed, let me see, May, in April of 1986, someone shows up at my my house in Florida. At, I got a, my house got like a big uh, route on gate that you had to get in. And so I, my, my doorbell, my gate bell rings and I go, I look out there and it's this guy I hadn't seen for quite a while. <clears throat> and I let him in the gate. He comes in and he tells me, this is in April now, before May. And back in May of 86, you'd spend a whole month there. It was the month of May. And it, it was truly delightful. I mean, you lived, eat, sleep, drink, talk, indie racing. And so um, he comes up in April and tells me, his brother got arrested in Louisiana, and if I've got something going on, don't do it. The FBI is watching me. I look right at him and tell him, I don't have nothing going on, but I got a load that's 10 days away in Louisiana where the guy got arrested, and the guy happens to know my marina while I'm bringing in the barge in the tugboat. <clears throat> 10 days offshore, so I have to reroute the boat now I get lawyers to try to negotiate with, it's in the state of Illinois, I'm being investigated. And unbeknownst to me, I'm also being investigated in Florida from the DEA. I didn't know that at the time. So when I go to Indy to go race, I've got the FBI following me everywhere I go and I kept telling my wife, man, I'm, I'm thinking, that, that person's over there, it looks like he's looking at me. And she said, oh, you're being paranoid. But it ends up, I was right. It was the, the agents that had been assigned to my case. So at Indy in 86, I had a lot going on. I, I had to load. I had rerouted going back through the Panama Canal up to San Francisco. I was taking it from New Orleans to San Francisco. And I had the, the, the FBI agents. But not only that, my partner 
Bill Whittington, he had been investigated and he was getting in trouble. So we like we had like FBI agents everywhere we go. <laughs> and Bill, they go, there was a chili place. Is it some place that's really known for chili? Skyline, maybe. Huh? Nick's. Nick's near the Speedway. So Nick, Bill and Dawn are at Nick's eating chili. And, and, uh, yeah, all of a sudden, someone kind of screams and stuff, and an agent then dropped his gun on the floor. And, <laughs> and they look over, and they go, man, I've been to seeing this guy looking in my garage area. He's been following Bill, and he's assigned to that case. So some of them aren't the brightest, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Drops the gun in the restaurant. I mean, I would think just the pressure of, I mean, making the biggest race of the world and knowing that, you know, everything was kind of crumbling down. With, you know, the agents following you. I mean, for a normal driver, I mean, that's a big deal to drive the Indy 500, a lot of pressure. But for you, you had all the other stuff going well, on. Yeah, that was a hard to stay focused. Yeah. yeah the, one of the things, and you'll hear, it's like a cliche. Um, where we put our attention, our energy follows. It's true. So it, it was hard for me to to focus that at that race and that was the first race I've ever driven in that I caught myself not focusing. Uh, Yellow had come out right towards the end of the race and I'm in 10th spot. I'm just I'm just running to finish the race in 10th. I'm a lap I'm a lap or two down and I'm on the back straightaway. And, and we got a yellow. And it's the first time ever in a race car that usually I'm really clear when I'm in a race car because I'm focusing on what's out in front of me. And and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm down the back straightaway and I'm thinking about some issues I've got going on with this, this load of weed that I got coming in and have felt fucked my whole life up. My wife's pregnant. I mean, things just bombarded me on the back of the raceway, and it's never happened ever, ever to me in a race car. And it was something that stuck with me. Yeah, well, I wasn't focused. Uh, <clears throat> luckily, I finished 10th. Um, amazing that we did. Uh, the crew kept me running, and we finished 10th, but that... Do, do you that think really without all the other thoughts in your mind that you probably could have finished much better with the equipment? And, uh, or did well, it just hit you at that time? No, it just hit me, and then it, 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 it faded away. Uh, once I I put my... Uh, I can't be thinking about this. No, well, there's only one other gentleman that I've known, and, and he said he was running at the speedway, and he's going down the back stretch, and he started thinking about business. Yeah. It was Bill Simpson. Oh, yeah. He said that was the Bill. day that he climbed out of the car yeah. and quit. Yeah, I, He was I, done. Bill Bill was a gentleman. He treated me with such respect. Uh, he, he took care of my uniforms, my suits. He, he's a near and dear friend around here, too. Yeah, I, I love Bill. And um, he used to amaze me when he'd set himself on fire. <laughs> if you watched that, uh, oh, yeah. I know you have. And it's amazing, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
So uh, how did all the other teams treat you? Did they know that any of this was going on? I mean, obviously you're paying for cash for parts and all of that. Were they receptive to you? Were they standoffish? How did the other teams and other drivers treat you? Um, well, in the, in the IMSA series, we were pretty um, friendly with the Porsche teams and the Ford teams and uh, the Jaguar teams, but also it was real competitive. But they treated us, uh, I, I became really good friends with Dirk, uh, Dirk Bell and Al Holbert. Um, they treated us with much respect. Well, they and, had to. You were beating them. Yeah, they they was always coming over, wanting to look and 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 check us out and that yeah. So the, he said the Gremlins. So back in 1984, movies comes out called the Gremlins. Uh, if you guys, I know you've heard of the Gremlins. So I'm I'm at a some department store and I see this Gremlin about a couple of feet kind of tall. And I, I put him on my moped, and I used to drive around with this gremlin on my moped. And I pull up to see Dirk and and um, Al Holbert, but they're not in the garage right there. But the 962 Porsche is. And it's just sitting at there, and it's all done. It's waiting for the race. So I stick the gremlin and take him off my handlebars, and I stick him in, my, in the driver's seat. Oh, no. It... <laughs> Well, that gearbox broke oh, in, no. in the race. Oh, no. And that's the first time Dirk and Al, they, they wasn't friendly. <laughs> <laughs> they got pissed. And, and, and they told the news media that the gremlins got them. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, now, I, I have a question. In your documentary, it says that you, there was people you thought maybe they were following you, um, and it turned out to be Ford. Trying to sign. No, that was mid Ohio. Yes. And 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 you might elaborate on that a little bit. But then afterwards, after you found out, you thought it was somebody FBI watching you, and it was Ford trying to yeah. sign you. Yeah. The next time when you had people following you, were you thinking it was Chevy or Ford or <laughs> March? And it was the FBI. Yeah. Elaborate yeah. on that, guns. please. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think Chevy's um, has guns with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so. He's talking about is in mid Ohio in the GTP race. Um, I had a I had a tough weekend that weekend. It was one of my the guy that you saw. His name is Charles. He's on the documentary. He was a yes. witness against me. <clears throat> he got married that he got. I was throwing his bachelor party that weekend. And that Just, was a show. Yeah, huh? It was kind of a show, right? It the was a farce because he he wasn't really. No, he was married. He was faking that he was, but he was gay. Right. So, That's where I'm getting at. Yeah. So <laughs> it was this, this guy was my book. He was my accountant. He, he kept all my books for me. I trusted him and he kept good books. And so it was, he was getting married and I had charted this 90 foot yacht, uh, bands, um, piles of caviar and, it was a big party down in Miami, and um, I fly in. We got Learjets, so we, we I take one of I think Bill's Learjet, and I shoot back to Miami, and um, I have this this big yacht chartered for this big party, and I shoot back the next day on a Saturday to catch the race, and 
we 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 were leading. We the I'm in first place, 962 of Derek Bell and L. Hobart's behind me, and I come up over a rise. And but we were developing, uh, Peter. You might remember this. We was developing the the sock with the little fuel cells where the plugs into a little cooler system. Do you remember that? We, we, yeah, the crew chief was developing with this company a really early stage of uh, a, uh, a fuel uh, a cooling system. It was supposed to keep the fuel cooler to make everything right. run smoother. Yeah, yes. so I had this this um, this the cap on, and I never turned it on, so it was just circulating and getting the temperature of inside of the car. It fried my brain. <laughs> and I mean, when I say fried my brain, I I blacked out. Oh no! I come over a rise in first place with uh, Al Holbert or Dirk right on my butt, and I black out. And I when I come to, I'm just starting to touch the guardrail, so I I get it off the guardrail, but it, it's the 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 car screwed up. I limp around in. I, they drag me out. The paramedics. And want to take me to the hospital. I'm dehydrated, and I refuse to go to the hospital. I said, "Just put me in my motorhome. I want to go to my motorhome." And Bill gets in the car. He's able to finish the race. I go to my motorhome. I'm laying in my bed. I got the air conditioning blowing on me. And Pam, my wife, comes out and says, "Uh, you know those two guys? All weekend, I said, man, those guys. They got suits on. Who the hell wears a sports jacket in the middle of summertime?" Who does that? Nobody wears a suit, uh, like a, a sports jacket at a, at a car race. It's too damn hot. And this is in mid-Ohio, and it's really hot. And uh, I've been telling Pam, I think those guys are FBI agents watching me. And she's, no, oh, no, they're not. They're, they're just race fans. So we've got a motorhome with a big catered area, and she comes in. I'm laying down. I'm trying to cool myself off. I'm feeling sick. And she says, she hands me a card. She says, those two gentlemen are outside wanting to speak with you. I look at the card, and it's a guy named Michael Cranifus, SVO, Special Vehicles of Operation for Ford Motor Company. Wow. I go, oh, man, I'm, I'm coming out now. I want to talk. <laughs> I, I've always heard about Michael and the good things he's got going on, and they've developed the probe right now with Klaus Ludwig, who is just a, he's a, he's a hot shot, hot shoe Fast driver, Klaus was fast. German race car driver that could really wheel a car, and uh, so I go out and I talk to Michael and the guy that he's with, and they tell me that they've been watching Blue Thunder and the team, and they like what they see, and they want to speak with 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 me about uh, doing the um, 1985 season with Ford Motor Company, and that deal ended up um, I didn't take it, and it's one of my worst choices look we all have choices in life and a lot of times as i've said um we can get caught up in our outer priorities and not pay so much attention to what really the right choices are that's one choice i i i would have liked to have made and followed through the guy they put in the car was um scott um damn i lost his last name now He's won five championships. Wouldn't prove Huh? Pruitt. Pruitt. Scott Pruitt. Huh? Pruitt. Scott Pruitt. Scott Pruitt. 
So Scott Pruitt got the rod, and I didn't, and I went to prison. <laughs> but now, actually, when the real guys came in suits that were the FBI, did you actually think they were FBI after that or not? So are you talking about when I got arrested? Yes. All right, so I got arrested. Uh, for months, for about six months, I tried to negotiate, not me, but my lawyers, tried to negotiate with the, F, with the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Illinois. I got indicted in the state of Illinois. <clears throat> this is what's really bizarre. None of my weed got caught. They, someone gets caught in Illinois with a truck of some weed. Not, not my merchandise, somebody else's, but he turns on all his suppliers. He has a supplier in Missouri. They set up a buy in Missouri and the guy in Missouri tells on a guy in New Orleans. The guy in New Orleans tells on a guy in Florida. And the guy in Florida is my brother-in-law. So um, when I got arrested, I tried to negotiate. I couldn't negotiate. They wanted, I mean, I, I, for six months, I kept sending lawyers up there to try to negotiate. But all they wanted was complete cooperation. And... I wasn't into frame of mind to, to tell on people. It's just something I grew up with that, um, you know, we did a handshake and it stays right here. It well, doesn't go no farther. And the, the one gentleman I was talking about that was kind of interesting and very entertaining, he, in the documentary, he was very upset with people that turned on people. Yeah, yeah. He was, he, he was upset. He was very loyal to you. So in the documentary he's talking about, my friend Alan was a guy who is old school. He doesn't believe on um, testifying or telling on people that you're involved with, if whatever it is. It's your business, not the other uh, people's. He was and, very upset with Charles. Yeah, he was upset with Charles. And I have forgiven all of these witnesses. I had... 64 witnesses, 24 government cooperating witnesses. The other 40-some were like uh, uh, law enforcement agencies, Scotland Yards, um, different hotel managers and stuff like that. But the 24 witnesses that were involved in my operation, uh, it took me probably 18 years before I came to a realization that I had to forgive these men. Because, and I'll, I, I tell you, I speak some different stuff about not just racing, but forgiveness. Forgiveness is so important because if you don't forgive yourself, first of all, for all the emotions and the resentment that I had, because throughout my 27 years, I spent seven years in solitary confinement. I spent seven years in solitary confinement because... I kept trying to figure out plans of how to get out of prison, not legally. Now, hang on. Before we go much farther, yeah. how close did you get to actually making that happen? I, I because did, I know yeah. you had a lot of plans to get I out. I had some good plans. Um, I was getting very close in a place called um, U U.S. Penitentiary, Florence, Colorado. And I get locked up for investigation of escape. They put you in solitary confinement. And I spent two years there. I spent seven years, the whole 27, in solitary confinement. And the longest was two years in Colorado. And I got to tell you, 
two years in a seven by ten foot cell with a little sink or a toilet and a bunk bed. Uh, it makes you makes you uh, come to a lot of understanding about yourself, and uh, that's what helped me come to understand that I need to forgive these people, and forgiveness and gratitude. The first thing I said is I, I'm really grateful for you guys being here. I am so grateful for you guys coming here and listening. And gratitude now, I understand, is the foundation of abundance. With gratitude, being grateful and living a life of, of really gratefulness, it brings about abundance. Abundance of the right people the right opportunities at the right time, maybe the right thing said you needed to hear it. But gratitude is the cornerstone of abundance. It brings about abundance in all areas of life. And you tie that in with forgiveness because if you don't forgive even yourself for having resentful, because I used to go to, when I get locked up, I used to pace in my cell and thinking, how could I ever pay back these people. But these people isn't who put me in prison. I, I myself did it by my choices. We all have the choices. So I made some, some dummy ass choices because I let greed take over. When I had a family, I wasn't putting my priorities in the right spot, family first. And I'm out here smuggling weed and making a hundred million dollars in racing, but yet I was missing a lot of lot of things that I should have really been paying attention to. And now I am just so grateful. I've got two seven-year-old grandkids and I get them every, every other weekend and I can't get enough of them. Yep. So, you know, we're talking about some of your prison escape plans. So first off, your co-defendant actually carried out a pretty elaborate plan or attempted to, right? No, he attempted. Yeah. He didn't I'm get... Pretty close, though. He come close. So... My co-defendant, we both got life sentences, and I'm in Miami fighting a case with him, another case. I got a, a separate case. I got a case called conspiracy to racketeer, and that's when you do two or more acts of the same type of acts. They call it uh, RICO, racketeering. So they end up, I've gotten a life sentence in 40 years for marijuana in Illinois. I'm in Miami, and they agree to drop, uh, I had six charges of racketeering, R Rico, and they drop them all but leave me with one, and they said they'd, they'd give me a five-year sentence run concurrent with my life sentence. And I told them, this is funny, I told my lawyer I'll take the deal on one condition. If they let me get a brand new pair of New Balance 1500 series running shoes. <laughs> and he says, running shoes? I said, yeah, I can't get them in a joint and I need these running shoes. So it, this is bizarre. He goes to the U.S. Attorney's office and says, hey, my client will take the deal, but he wants a pair of 1,500 New Balance running shoes. <laughs> he says, okay, well, you bring them to the, to the courthouse and you can give them to him at the, at the sentencing. That's why I got my new shoes. <laughs> now, were those going to be involved in an escape? Those were going to be involved in an escape. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I have a question because, I mean, you spend 27 years in the pen. I mean, that's a long time. And, and when Reagan was setting that, 
nobody was ever supposed to get out. And yep. Like you said, yep. now they give you a license to, to yep. grow it. License. Same thing you spent 27, which isn't right in my eyes. But when you found out that you were getting out after 27 years, oh. what was your thought? God, I look, I jumped up. In, so let me set the stage for that. I got a counselor's office. I had, let me back up a little bit. I'm in prison for 19 years, six months. I'm at mail call, 4 p.m. mail calls every day, mail call. I'm at mail call every day, whether I get mail or not. So I'm at mail call, and I get this big manila envelope, a legal, legal envelope. So I go to my cell. I'm not expecting mail, legal mail. I go, I open it, and it's a, a motion. And it's a letter from my attorney telling me, explaining me what is in this motion. It's a motion from a U.S. attorney in Illinois. And the U.S. attorney had seen, I got 19 years, six months. In six months, I'm not going to owe the government any money. I have a, they seized $150 million. They, they have fined me $60 million. I still owe another $60 million in forfeiture. In six months... In 20 years, the forfeiture expires, I, meaning it, it runs out. I will not owe the government any money at all. But some brilliant U.S. attorney sees in six months, hey, we're not going to be able to collect any money from Lanier. Let's file a motion to extend for 20 more years, meaning they can seize anything that I'm related to for 40 years. Wow. Never happened. I'm the first one that they've done this to. So we filed a motion for discovery. I got 19 years, six months in. Three months go by before I receive anything, and I get a package about this thick. It's a Senate investigative report. And in this investigative report, remember I told you I built a casino in 1985. I built a casino. They seized it several Where years. Where was that at? Just in Gardenia, California. It's okay. called the Bicycle Club. It's still off and running. I don't own it. They, they, they seized it. But anyway, it, it's 19 years, six months, three months go by, and I get a, I get a, uh, a Senate investigative report. And in this report, I find out that the U.S. Marshals Service kept and managed the casino for three years before they found a buyer, which they allowed to manage drug-related properties. But they're supposed to vet the buyer. Well, they didn't vet the buyer. They sold it to organized crime, an Asian organized crime family. But the U.S. Marshal Service kept 6% interest of it for nine years. They made over $150 million. Wow. Illegally. So now when we find this out, we start putting in the, uh, the, all the stuff for a lawsuit. <clears throat> Along with that, and that takes me from 19 years, six months, another seven years to go through the courts. And at the same time, President Obama came in and he gives a directive down to the U.S. Justice Department to look at all the long-term nonviolent prisoners. We got to do something with overcrowding. I fall into that. I'm a first-time nonviolent offender. And now I have this lawsuit going on. So I hit like a perfect storm. Like, God bless me with all this stuff, man. And next thing I know, I got a lawsuit going on with the, I'm adding interest every day. 
that $157 million, deduct 60 from it, they owe me the balance with interest. They ended up owing me $232 million. So after the 27 years, I got 30 days, and, and uh, I finally made progress. It took me seven years, and we're getting ready for a trial. Uh, we got an evidentiary hearing coming on this. We have found an $80,000 payment to our U.S. Marshals, and we, we, they stopped sending me discovery. So we had filed motions, and about two months prior, I get a letter from the FBI because we had to have a special hearing. The judge ordered the FBI to give me all my discovery that I'm entitled to concerning the casino. I get a letter prior to what I'm getting ready to tell you, 30 days prior from the FBI that says the evidence room caught on fire and all my evidence has been uh, burned up. They don't have no more stuff on the casino no more. It's It got caught up in a uh, fire in the evidence room. So we're going, damn, these guys are, are hiding everything. We can't. We had just found $80,000 to a U.S. Marshal, and now we've lost getting anything. So now I'm coming up on an evidentiary hearing. My, my attorney gets a phone call from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and he says, hey, if your attorney, if your client drops the lawsuit, we'll give him time served. And he doesn't know it's the $60 million. So I told my attorney, sign me up. I want to go home. I'm done. I don't want to fight no more. I'm broke. I'm let my ass out. So 30 days later, I had a court hearing, and the judge agreed uh, that the U.S. Attorney's Office didn't argue it or fight it, and the time served, and that's how I got out. I didn't get pardoned. Now, I, there was a gentleman that I told you to hold on to a picture yeah, and I think this is kind of fun. Lighten it up a little bit here. <clears throat> Just hand that to Randy and let uh, Randy explain. And from what I understand, this was the first time that Randy drove in a long time. So let's hear the so story on this. I'm a meditator. I meditate every day. I First thing I get up, before I get out of bed, I sit like two or three intentions, that's all. Not a big plateful. Two or three intentions. Because intentions, like if something ain't going right, your intention is to do this or that and you'll get it done. So, but I meditate in the morning and this is at Miami Homestead Speedway and Sports Illustrated had asked me to, they wanted to do an article but they like to do it at a racetrack. I said, well, I'm, I'm instructing in a Corvette school uh, at Miami Homestead if you want to come down there. And I had just gotten out of prison. I hadn't been out very long here. And um, we get talking. He says, well, can I get you on the racetrack? So I walked over there and I said, how about this? And this is how he got this picture. But it's amazing, the meditation. And it may sound strange to you, but we find our greatness in silence, stillness, being still. And I want to tell you, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's quieting the mind. It really is, because your mind wants to run, wants to constantly be going. But if you practice it, you can develop the skills to have stillness in your life. 
and it's it's just a great thing. Uh, <laughs> you don't see that at a racetrack too often. <laughs> but you did end up getting in a car. I, oh yeah. So the the Sports Illustrated guy who is you guys will see this guy on sixty minutes. His name is John Wortham. Wortham. He's on sixty minutes now. He's one of the 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 moderators on sixty minutes. He brings. Um, I think it was a Mustang down to me, a rental car. And I give him, I try to give him the ride of his life. <laughs> in the rental car. <laughs> in the rental and, car. And you said it had been a moment since you'd driven anything. It's been a minute, and uh, I'm sure he, uh, it was a good ride for him because it was a good ride for me. So <laughs> uh, a couple of times I thought uh, maybe I shouldn't be driving it like this with somebody in the car. <laughs> Sure. Your first Anybody? Time, I'm sorry, go on ahead. Your first time in a race car after getting out was in mid-Ohio, correct? Yes. And it was because I know there's a like a mini documentary on YouTube about it. Yeah, uh, so I this is really odd. The name of my prosecutor is Michael Carr. C-A-R-R. -R, Mike Carr. I'm in a halfway house. I have to spend six months at a halfway house when I get out. And I first get a letter from this guy, and I'm setting up my email, and it's a guy, and he says, my name's Michael Carr. I live in Pennsylvania, and I'd like to know if you're interested in driving a race car. We'll fly you to mid-Ohio, and you can drive my BMW. So I wrote back, is this some, some joke? Because that's the name of my prosecutor, Mike Carr. And what's the chances of a guy named Mike Carr offering me a race, uh, a, a driving a race car? Just won't happen. So I said, who, is this a joke? He said, no, this is no joke. I'm an attorney. My name's Michael Carr, and we just want to, we want to support you and bring you up to the racetrack. And uh, I go to my probation officer, and she said, okay, um, go ahead and go. And that was my first at Mid-Ohio, and a. Uh, you know, 335 and what's called an AER, American Endurance Racing. It's like chump car racing. But we agreed it was a turd. Yeah. Probably, probably could have rolled but, the, but it was fun for you, I'm so sure. It was so much fun. And the first day I got in the car, it was raining. Yeah. And um, I, look, I, about the second lap, I'm spinning 180s, not meaning to, <laughs> coming over a little rise. And, uh, but then the race, by the time I got in the race car, we had Road and Track magazine that was right down from my pit. So they came over and said, hey, would you mind, we want to get uh, you driving that race car across the finish line at the end of the race. So I hopped in their car, I raced my car, their car, my car again. <laughs> and it was amazing because these youngsters were, I, I, I didn't understand it. It was a 16-hour race. It was two eight-hour races, Saturday and Sunday, eight hours a day. And these guys would drive like an hour and then get out. And I'm thinking back in that day, we'd drive three hours in any endurance racing before you would drive. You wouldn't want to get out so fast because you waste time. Well, now, was that your first time driving a, trans, a manual transmission after getting out? Yes. So what was, I mean, was it just like riding a bike? Like, did you pick it up pretty no, quickly? No, it's not like riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not for me, anyway. Um, it's, what's amazing that we have all these, you hear me talking about superpowers, these 
capacities and capabilities is one of the capabilities we have is having confidence in ourselves. And once I got over the, of not being in a car in a few laps, then I said, wait a minute, I can do this just as well as anybody. So my confidence, belief in myself, believing in yourself, all of a sudden, now my lap times are, are I'm knocking them off. I'm 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 hitting my marks. So it took me uh, took me a a minute to feel comfortable, especially in the rain. But um, it wasn't like riding a bike. I, I felt a little uncomfortable for the first half a day. But mentally, once I got my mental um, belief in myself, it it changes things, and it doesn't matter. If you're racing your car, or you're trying to write a book, or you paint. Look, when I went to prison, some of the wonderful things happened to me. And it, it's crazy because I spent all those years in maximum security with some real knuckleheads and some real bad people that actually deserve to be in prison. Uh, it's sad to say that, but that's just how it is. But I picked up a paintbrush. I got, I'm a runner. I run 50 to 75 miles a week. I'm a big runner, not no more because I got a hip replacement. I wore out all the cartilage on my hip. So when I couldn't walk really far, I go out to the yard and I walk like five minutes. And I go, oh, God, man, I got to park it, man. I can't. My hip's hurting. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go down to the art room and I'm going to learn how to paint. So I go down to the art room. I get me a locker. I order my paints and stuff. And that's for my last several years. That's where I found myself, is in the art room or the, uh, doing the yoga classes. And um, now I have a passion for painting. I love to put oil on canvas. And um, it's a beautiful thing because I tell everybody in, the, in prison, you could, be in, you could be in the south of France when you're painting. It doesn't matter that you're in joint. You're in the painting. And it's a beautiful thing because it's focus, it's concentration. And I tell people now, <clears throat> if you haven't found your purpose or if you want to know what your purpose is, an easy way to find it is look at what breaks your heart. And you'll find a purpose. Just like these prisoners. You see me when I first got here, I talked to you about one of my purposes that these men are separated from their families, their wives, their children. And I'm trying to make a difference and spread the message that no one should be locked up for this plant. So purposes are, all our purposes are changed throughout our life. And, you know, as you find them, be really grateful that, you know what, you're on to something. Now, you were talking about the hip replacement. I've heard this story, but you got the hip replacement while you were in prison, correct? Yep. And yeah. it was kind of a long, drawn-out process. So I w it took me about seven years to get us a hip replacement. And what happened was... What? Closer to your mouth. Here. So I, 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 you have to file for any medical things. The doctors approved it. They said, yeah, x-rays, CAT scan, you got to have a hip replacement. So they finally, after a few years, take me to Missouri. It's a Springfield, Missouri. It's a hospital medical facility. <clears throat> I'm what's called a high accountability prisoner. They gave me a big orange card. It's about this big and a 
and about this long. They wanted me to wear it around my neck. I had to use it for 18 years. High accountability. Every two hours, I have to find an officer. Every two hours on the weekdays, every one hour after 4 p.m., every one hour on the weekends, and every one hour on the holidays, I've got to go find an officer and tell him, hey, show him my orange card. It's got my picture. It's got my 0496106.9, my number, and tell him, will you call me in to control? So he'll get his microphone, his radio out, and he says, hey, this is officer so-and-so. I got a visual on Lanier. He's in the law library. Uh, rec yard or wherever he's at. I got to do it every one hour after 4 p.m. or every two hours in the weekdays. That went on for 18 years. And now I go get a hip replacement. I still on high accountability, so they don't let me on the, on the yard. They put me in solitary confinement. <clears throat> so I sat there for seven months, and I don't get, they, they haven't got my hip replacement yet. Seven months and I'm in solitary confinement. My daughter's in Colorado. She asked me if she can come visit. So I asked the warden one day when they was him and the captain, hey, can, would you guys approve a visit, a contact visit for my daughter? I've been here for seven months. What's up? When are I getting the hip replaced? Oh, you're getting it done, Lanier, uh, soon. So they approved my contact visit. About a week before the contact visit, the captain that approved it retired, and a new captain comes aboard. So I see the new captain and the warden one day, and I tap on my window in my cell, and the captain come, The new captain comes over, and I say, hey, uh, hi, I'm Lanier, blah, blah. He said, I know who you are. I said, well, uh, would you mind writing a memo to the visiting room that my daughter's been approved, Captain Basinger, who just retired, approved it. He looked at me, he says, Lanier, as long as I'm a captain here, you'll never have a contact visit. I said, wait a minute, they've already approved it. So I bang on the window and the warden comes over and he says, what's all the banging, Lanier? I said, well, would you tell the captain that you've approved my visit with my daughter next week? He said, what did the captain tell you? Well, the captain told me that uh, he doesn't allow visits in, in uh, solitary confinement, in the hole. We call it the hole. It's called the shoe, special housing unit. He said, well, Lanier, if he told you that, looks like you're not getting a visit. So I look at him, and I kind of come unglued. I said, you know what the fuck is wrong with you? You don't have a spine. And I went back, and I started reading my book. He said, Lanier, I'm not playing games with you. I'll send your ass back. I said, well, send me back. That's all. So about 10 days go by, and I hear all these chains. <laughs> chains coming out. So I get up to my window. You got a little window like six inches wide. I'm looking out and they come right to my door. And I go, oh, I'm getting a hip replacement today, huh? And they look at me and they go, nah, Lanier, you're not getting no hip replacement. You pissed somebody off. I go, oh, no, man. So sure enough, they tell me to shackle up. They, they shackle me up. <clears throat> they take me to the airport. And they've got a Gulfstream 150, brand new. I don't know if you guys know about planes. This is bigger than a Learjet. I go in. They got me catered uh, like Dunkin' Donuts and, and sandwiches and stuff. They spent $65,000 to fly me one way from Springfield, Missouri to Florida. I'm in the middle state of Florida because the warden got his feelings hurt. 
$65,000 of taxpayers' money, by the way. That, that's where they get the money to run this shit. <laughs> so I was like, wow, did he get a half his ass? And yeah. So now I go back to the prison in Florida and I file um, grievances on the warden. And it takes me two more years and the warden transfers from that medical facility and they send me back and I get my hip replacement. Now, how many different prisons were you in? Um, well, let me see. Um, I was in a few. Atlanta. Terre Haute too, right? Terre Haute, Indiana. The, by the way, Terre Haute, Indiana, we call Gladiator School. Because I came there in 1992, uh, 93, and 94. And it was like all these young gangbanger people that would, uh, they make these shanks. And in the maximum security, they don't so much fight. They would rather stab you. And so I was glad I left there in 94 and went to Colorado to a USP there in Florence, Colorado. So I was in Atlanta, Indiana, <clears throat> Leavenworth, Kansas, Florence, Colorado, um, Coleman, Florida, about five. No, oh, Lewisburg, six. Um, now, I've always wondered, like, when they transfer you from one prison to another prison on the other side of the country, how do they do that? Con Air. <clears throat> they got planes. And they, they got a big, in Oklahoma City, they got a big transfer center. You fly in there, you, just like a regular airport, you, when you get out the walkway, you're in the prison. Right there. Now, when they fly me, because I was at that two-hour accountability, they what they call black box me. So my black box prisoner is the first prisoner to get off the plane. So I looked at it, I'm blessed. I'm the first one getting off the plane because I've got this two hour watch. They're gonna get me to a cell all by myself. I get the VIP treatment. They take me right up to the seventh floor and I tell them put me in a suite. I'm all by myself, I got a single cell. And I'm the first one off, but when they black box you, you got a handcuff, and the handcuff's got a little chain between the cuffs. But an inmate designed this. It's a metal box, and the chain between your wrist goes inside this metal box, and it clamps. And then they take a regular padlock, and they lock it. So with a handcuff, you can move because there's a chain. But with the metal box, you can't move your hand, and it cuts into your wrist so bad. It's like torture. Now, does anybody have any questions out here tonight? I mean, we, we've kind of, I'm going to pass it around and. Any we'll questions? Start. Yep. Just. Randy. Yes. I've seen you on the uh, Dale Jr. podcast. Yes, I like Dale. You told a story about Indy in 86. You were doing some testing. And the yellow light came on. Yeah, that was 85. Uh, 85. You yep. stayed on the track. Yep. And you got your butt ate out. I got reamed out. Well, didn't the guy tell you not to come back? The guy told me not to come back. <laughs> that was the Chief Stewart, right? It was Chief Stewart. Who was that? I can't remember the name Damn, of the guy. Damn, I can't remember. If, if I heard it, I'd tell you. Tell who? Benford. That's who it was. Benford? Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He was mad because I got lippy. 
Yeah, you told him you were tire testing and you wanted to I stay was, out. Yeah. To get the tires to a certain temperature. Yeah, yeah. but I said it in a, <laughs> I said, like, look, I, I told him what I was doing, and he says, uh, well, you're not following the rules or something. I said, well, what the fuck does that got to do with it? I'm, uh, there's nobody was in front of me. I was, no one was in front of me, and we had the first pit coming off of turn four to get uh, that we knew we could get good tire temps right there. Well, did he kind of tell you maybe you shouldn't come back if you can't follow the rules? Yeah, he kind of did tell me yeah. that. <laughs> well, did you go back in 86, though? Yes, I went back in 86 and finished 10th. 86. Okay. Yeah. That's the only year you ran? Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, I could have swore you said you didn't go back at all after that. No, I went uh, 85. Oh, I got kicked out. Uh, in 80, what year did you go to jail? 87? 87. Okay. 86, right. I'm at Indy 500. In 87, I'm in a courthouse instead of a race car. Rags to riches. <laughs> Into quickness. <laughs> all right. Thank you. You're welcome. Anybody else? What was your last race, by the way, Randy, before you went to prison? My last race was the Michigan 500. Um, had done really well there, qualified super good. Um, thought I was going to win my first Indy race, and uh, Mario Andretti had crashed, and I picked up some debris on his crash, and I slid a t my right front tire. I, I slid some debris, cut a right front tire, and put me in the wall at 214 miles an hour, and I crushed my right leg. I had a double compound fracture to the right femoral bone. Yep. That's one. Okay, I got one question. Hey, Donnie. You had a 34 Ford ZZ top type car. Yeah, boy, beautiful car. You it guys was. put a race motor in that. Uh, the the race shop. Peter, you remember that? Somebody built a, a race motor for that. Uh, for the 30, 30, uh, it was a 30, I had a 32 Ford and a 34 Ford ZZ top like a car. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, with these blower on it. With the, yeah. yeah. It was nice. And Very nice. I asked, the last time I saw you before you went to jail was after the Miami race that Cheever drove. And you were there, but we stopped by your house on the way home. And I saw that car and I thought, man, that's nice. And I yeah. asked you, I said, well, where you're going I could sure use that car, <laughs> but you didn't give it to me, you know? Yeah, you know, I had a warehouse full of cars. I love cars. So I collected hot rods, and I had um, old Porsches. I had uh, from every Porsche from 56 or something to, uh, yeah, and um, I'm, I, I flee. I, I I can't get a negotiation with the FBI, so I split. I go to Switzerland, and uh, my wife's telling me they know about the cars, and they they tell me they're going to indict me if I don't give them the cars. So I said, all right, call this attorney in a week, and he'll have the keys to a warehouse. <clears throat> and um, I ended up giving the keys to her to give to the lawyer to the FBI, and they they took all the cars. The FBI. What's up? Okay, so this is kind of a fun question, but we're back here laughing because we're like, wow, this guy has been through more in his life than we can even imagine. So after everything you've gone through, is there anything that still phases you or that you're still scared of or anything after the years of whatever you've gone through that you still think about? You're like, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, 
You said anything that I'm scared of. Anything you're uh, scared of, of or that still phases fear. you after everything you've been through. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, see, I, I've had a lot of time to contemplate. And by that, I mean, when you're sitting in a 10-foot by 7-foot cell, you have a lot of time to think. And philosophically, I've come to understand that really there's no reason to fear. It, it isn't because we all make decisions on fear for real. I mean, you can look at the COVID shots right there. Do you really need so many COVID shots? Oh, well, it helps. Maybe scientifically, I understand it, all right? But we all, we go through this journey and we make decisions sometimes on fear. And if you really just take a moment and really pay attention, <clears throat> you may make a different decision because a lot of times our choices are fear-based. And so I try to pay attention um, with what it is that I'm, I'm thinking about if it's bothering me, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm just so blessed and grateful to be here that, you know, if I had a quadruple bypass, look, I come out of the joint, <clears throat> running 50 to 75 miles a week. In the, in the joint, the doctors used to, when I did see them, <clears throat> they tell me, you got to take this cholesterol medicine. You got high cholesterol. So I said, no, I'm not taking no pills. I'm not. I'm not taking medication. So I didn't take my medication. And I come out to joint and um, 2000, I come out in 2014 and in 2017, I'm at the dentist and I'm getting a crown put in and I get like heartburn. And the dentist tells me, you okay, sir? I said, yeah, I'm just, I got some heartburn. If I finish up, I'm going home. I go home, I eat some Rolaids, I lay down, and my jaw locks up, my arm like freezes, and I know I, I can't take a breath. I can't even breathe in, I can't breathe out, and I know this is really, really bad. I'm getting major pain now. I mean, my, my chest is lit up, I'm having a heart attack. So I make it to the hospital. My wife comes in. I said, she calls now. I can't, don't call one. I ain't got time to wait. I got to get to the hospital now. And I make it to the hospital. One's not close. One's pretty close by my house. We get there and they, they, by the time they do the angioplasty, they tell me I got to have a quadruple bypass. So I said, well, if you're waiting on me, you're backing up. Get the cutting. So... I have a quadruple bypass, but if I knew what I knew now, I probably wouldn't have made that decision because I kind of based it on what they was telling me and what I just went through of some fear. And a couple of years after I had the quadruple bypass, I walk up three flights of stairs. I'm working at a substance abuse treatment. I'm a behavioral health technician. And I walk up three flights of stairs and I get dizzy. I'm going, what the hell? I'm, I'm going to spin out and fall out. So I go to the hospital. I know something's wrong. And they check me out. And they tell me, look, we got to put a stint in you right now. Your, three of your arteries stopped working. They're completely failed. You've only got one artery pumping blood. 
So I said, if you're waiting on me, you're backing up. So they started to put the stint in me, work on me for two hours. They take me out of the this at Cleveland Clinic in 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 Florida. <clears throat> they come out and they wheel me out and they say, Well, we got some bad news. I said, Well, bring my wife in. I wanna talk want her to hear it. So they bring me in and they start telling me that's unfortunately there's nothing they can do. The stent I've got something called chronic total occlusion. The three grafts that they put in for my legs here will not take a stent. And I'm stuck with one artery pumping blood. And there's nothing they can do. So I said, well, about that time, I'm not feeling good. I'm getting clammy. And I black out. Next thing I know, I come to. They're all over me. And they tell me, well, they're sorry. They cut an artery. And they didn't realize it. But I bled out. So when they was telling me I needed a stent, they didn't know they cut an artery and my whole body cavity filled up because I bled out. Uh -huh. And now I still need a stent, but there's nothing they can do. But there is now. I became a vegan. I went and got books about heart disease. And I found out that if you eat plant-based food only with minimum oil, you can reverse heart disease in six years. So I've been a plant eater <laughs> for three years now, and I'm a vegan, and uh, just the decision I made, I'm trying to reverse this heart disease, but they've come up with a new deal now. They want me to come in, and they go in with your arms through robotics, and they find a vein, and they take this vein, and they move it over, and they channel it like a channel. They, they bore it out and they turn it into an artery and then they connect it. And so I'm looking at that and um, uh, I don't like hospitals. <laughs> I don't think many people do. What's up? Well, I can, all I can say is I want people to have one-on-one -on -one with you. Randy, this has been phenomenal, and, and I think we all thrive for more. I love your message. I think... I personally, I'm going to tell you this in front of everyone. I want more of your message. I love your message. But I want to give these people uh, a chance to be with you one-on-one -on -one with your book signing. Right on. So I'm going to, I'm going to shut this down because we'll all take turns because we're racing people. And we definitely enamor your message, uh -huh. your, 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 your journey. And I think that every one of us will be patient and you can finish up with this, and yeah. then we want you cool. to sign the books because they want to be a part of your message. Thank you. Thank you. So this is amazing, and I'll make this kind of brief. So I'm in the joint. I got 23 years in prison, and I get another mail call, and it, it's a package. I take it to my cell, open it up, and it's these pictures of these beautiful women and they're in front of the White House, and they got my picture on it asking President Biden to release me. And I'm going, who the hell are these women? Look at this. And, and it's these women that are advocates. They, it's a lady, she's 76 right now. Her name's Stephanie Lander. And she got approved to grow marijuana in Oakland, California. And they raided her, the federal government, and they gave her five years. She was in her 60s. 
So she goes to prison. She comes out and she starts Freedom Grow. So it's just these women that are, are marijuana advocacy people, and they said they want to support me. I'm going, damn, I've never seen such support. And they're in front of the White House. They're in front of California, uh, these rallies. And they got my poster, my picture on cards asking the president to release me. So this is me last November in front of the White House doing the same thing that helped get me out in uh, 2014. So it's like a full circle. And that's uh, asking um, Joe Biden to pardon people, not turkeys. And I would just, this, I had put this together actually not for here. I had done it at a prior event. We had did a school supply, but now I'm doing holiday drive for the children for back to school. But this is how, if any of you are interested or want to help others, uh, this is one thing I was going to speak to you about. Inspiration and magnificent is within us and all around us. All you got to do is look at your person, your brother, your sister, the person beside you. You're looking at inspiration and magnificence because we have so many superpowers. It's an amazing thing. And when you start paying attention to the powers of just being the observer and the witness of your own thoughts and emotions, it's a superpower. You don't have to be a reactive mind. You can be a responsive mind, and that pays a lot of dividends. So that's amazing. Being of service to others is one of our many purposes, and that's really true because when you uplift someone, you uplift yourself, and it's an amazing thing. And I spoke about how we choose to perceive things creates our experience. If you're ever having a bad experience or a negative deal, change your perspective and you'll see your experience will change. And that's about it, man. Thank you. That's it. Yeah. Right. Appreciate you all. Randy, if we can get you, I'd, I'd like to, we've got your books over there at the table. Got you set up with Sharpies. Yeah. Um, if you'd spend a little bit of time and talk to everybody, let sure. them visit. And there's a lot of people that want some books. Right on. I'd like um, to thank everybody. I, I thought that was uh, very interesting. Well, it, it was definitely different, Father, than what you may have. I don't know if you have expectations or not. Or, look, as we go through this life, I swear, the less expectations we can have, the better it is. We don't want to have expectations. It, it can lead to resentment. So try to kneel down the expect expectations of things, man. And I, I'm just blown away. I'm happy to be here. I, it, it, it blows my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm leaving here and I'll be in Las Vegas next week. I've been invited by two public traded companies. These are marijuana companies that sell stocks. They, they trade. And they've, they've asked me to come out there to do some promotion of the books. And um, they want to do some branding um, because of my New Jersey license. So I got, it's like, it's mind-blowing. They, they, they send me to penitentiary, and then they give me a license to, to sell $130 million a weed a year. It, it, it just, and so I'm going to be able to do things now, this time, a lot different than when I did in the 80s, you know, I'll, I'll be able to really 
do some really good things uh, with this license and with cannabis. So, pretty amazing. Oh, that, listen, I've already been thinking about a, 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 car, a race car team, all right? So, uh, yeah, hey. All right, I guess we're, what we're signing at. Um, either here, do we want to do here or here? Oh, look, you put my freedom prisoners. Yep. Look, I got, thank you, baby. Hey, look, uh, you know, you, you don't have a lot of people talking to you about prisoners, and everybody that gets to the joint, you think, uh, they deserve it, they screwed up or whatever, but you'd be surprised when you start looking at these cannabis cases how majority of them are nonviolent people. And it's no way they should be in, in prison doing all this time for a plant. We're good. It's been enjoyable. Grateful for you guys. Thank you so much.